Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered ChampaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's up? It's Lukey. I'm hosting once again, and I feel like I've really gotten to know you over the the course of this after show that we're starting to do as this winds down. But please introduce this very strange, morbid, and strangely fascinating story we're going to talk about today that is very unlike any of the others that we've talked about so far. Dark Side of the After Show, episode number eight. And this story was about Paul Sykes. An expert in violence, as he so very well put it himself. Luke, this this was one of the strangest stories I've ever done. And I genuinely didn't know a lot about Paul Sykes before doing this episode. And the video that I actually put out on social media in preparation for the episode going live. You know, I'd seen that floating around social media for quite, quite a while. And I just thought, who the hell is this guy? He's just absolute talking nonsense. And then obviously we come to do the Paul Sykes story and I realise it's Paul Sykes. And then when we did the story, it made a lot of sense as to uh, why he was saying what he was saying and, and why he had this, uh, this this you know, ego about himself, why he felt a certain way about himself. It was quite a, uh, quite a strange, crazy, morbid story, as I think you so rightly put it. So much to say when you get into this story, but I think first and foremost when you look at characters like this, we often look at like the finished product and it's normally in a movie. It's normally the villain of a protagonist. And we never look at how does someone become this? And what was interesting reflecting on this is his achievement basically was being one of the most feared men in prison. And we rarely kind of do a character study on someone. Normally we do character studies on athletic achievement or on, becoming a notable person in politics or an innovator. And it was kind of a weird 
juxtaposition to be in this position where we're having this discussion based on his level of relevance and fear in a certain arena that most people probably don't even have who's my favorite prisoner in the UK currently. And that, that alone is kind of a notable feature about him. It's a very niche topic, isn't it? I think like you have to be really into crime, true crime. You have to really be into, you know, the, the, the characters that have surrounded the prisons in the UK for, for many, many years. And I think that's when you come across a character like Paul Sykes and, you know, what his life was like. And, for me, like I said, I never really knew too much about him before doing the story. But when I started to go through the research with Johnston, we started to put the notes together. And there was just this plethora of crazy stories. Like, And I know we say that word a lot on the show. We say, oh, it's a crazy story. But to us, it is. It feels like utter madness at times. Like some of these actions, we can't believe these actions or these incidents have, have actually taken place. Like... We, you know, we had a YouTube comment only a couple of days ago, actually, on, on an episode from season one about Tony Ayala. And the comment was talking about how he was sort of sniggling and giggling during sort of parts of that episode. And then, then these are parts of the episode that were quite horrific. You know, a, a woman gets raped. But it's not so much that we laugh at the expense of the victims of these incidents. It's, for us, it's more like we can't actually believe it, these things actually happened. And it's like you either laugh or you cry about them. And for us, it's like a nervous laugh as, you know, as if to say, wow, has this really happened? And, and the only way we can deal with that is in, in our own sort of humor way uh, of being able to actually comprehend that these things have happened. And it was the same with this story, with Paul Sykes' story. There was two particular stories in there where... You know, me and Johnston really couldn't hold ourselves. We really couldn't hold ourselves. It was like I literally felt like I was, I was, I was crying, laughing because I just couldn't believe like these incidents actually occurred in in real time. And I'm trying to visualize these incidents happening in real time. Like you don't, you don't think these things are possible, and then when you hear the accounts from people that were there, and you think, wow, these things actually happened. You're like. You're trying to sort of comprehend how did it happen? Did it really happen? Is it just an exaggerated story? I, I feel like a lot of these stories that we put together, I don't feel like they're exaggerated. I feel like they are true stories. I feel like they, they, are, they are of the truest form because a lot of the stories came from people who were around Paul who had then been interviewed for subsequent books on Paul. So surely, you know, they, they, they've tried to give the guy a bit of justice by telling the true story, whether it be good or bad. Well, you bring up a good point. And there's so many different things I want to say, but one of the things is I think when something traumatic happens, we're either going to cry or we're either going to react really irrational and probably laugh because it's like, it triggers a response where we aren't trained to do it. And it's going to be an inherent reaction to protect ourselves kind of like I once saw something scary early in the morning and my body wouldn't let me walk and I've never experienced that again but I knew my body was telling me like I'm in danger like there was an inherent thing that was like I'm not letting you move because something in front of you really poses a threat to you what this story in the core beginning reminded me of is how Sykes didn't even really like he loved fighting but he was forced into boxing. And this is like, I think a common story for young fighters is 
parents, predominantly fathers, taking their sons into boxing and basically saying, whether you like it or not, in life, you're going to have to do stuff you don't like. I like boxing or I want you to be able to fight. Here's the gym, go. And I think that that is a common story. And that kind of started this whirlwind of just his relationship with violence, creating warm, fuzzy moments for him. Well, it started from an early age. His sister did say in an interview, you know, after he's, he's, he's long gone off this world, and she said to, to Jamie Boyle, the author of the three books that he's wrote on Paul Sykes, and she actually said to him in an interview, you know, my dad was really brutal with him. My dad had beat him when he was... He'd get him <clears throat> a moment where he was most vulnerable. So, you know, Sykes would be, you know, only six, seven years old. He'd be naked. He'd be in the bath. He'd be either getting out of the bath or he'd be in the bath. The dad had come storming in with a, with a leather belt with the buckle end and he's, and he's hitting him with it. And it's like that straight away to me is just disgraceful behaviour. But that was the behaviour of a lot of parents during the 1950s and 60s and 70s and even 80s. And Paul Sykes was abused. It's simple as that. He started his life being abused by the people that are supposed to love him unconditionally. It's not a surprise when you reflect upon it that he automatically turns to violence because for me violence breeds violence that cycle continues throughout generations unless the chain is broken and unfortunately Paul wasn't able to break that chain he felt like boxing was when he was pushed into it it was like something that he enjoyed because he probably felt the violence and the wrath of his father and he felt like inflicting wrath on somebody else was maybe a way of him dealing with the issues that he'd gone through but then it's like when someone gets a taste for something like that and they start to enjoy it, that's when it becomes a really fine line, you know, between being a sportsman and just being an out-and-out brutal thug. Man, I was looking for um, for a certain reference and you, you ended before I could fully get it, but there's a show called The Real Ghostbusters. I don't know if you had it in the UK. In America, it was like, it was, a, I think I'd put it as like an average show. Like it was like an enjoyable, but it wasn't one of those where I'd wake up at like seven in the morning to see it. Like it, if it came on, I'd see it, but I wanted my pro wrestling more than I wanted the real Ghostbusters. But the way I look at cycles throughout my life, and this will tell you how much I consumed entertainment as a child, probably. I think it was called the Grundle in this show. I'm doing research on it, but it was basically... Uh, a character a monster in this show that would do bad things to a child and then they become that thing i think we've seen it in star trek with the borg there's all these different literary figures where there's a monster out there that changes your child or your innocent unprotected thing and they become that thing and i think that that literary trope or that fictional trope is basically this it's how if a child is abused as a child, the biggest fear is without love and understanding and people being there to kind of try to support them, that it could even get worse. And I think that with this story, it's extremely sad because I think that we're looking at someone who's a survivor of extreme trauma. And by the end of his life, he's extremely burnt out on even being alive. Yeah. I mean, jump, jumping right to sort of the end jumping around the timeline a little bit you know you go to the end of the story and he was he was somebody that liked to inflict punishment upon people not always because he just liked it for fun 
a lot of the time, in his own words, in the interviews and, and the documentaries that are out there on him, you do hear him specifically say some people need a right, a right, a right punch or a right bash, I think are the words he uses. Um, and it's usually, there seems to be some sort of moral code there, is what I'm getting at. There seemed to be a moral code with him when it came down to the violence. It didn't just seem to be, you know unpredictable violence there seems to be some for me there was a code there with him you know like some people have their own moral codes of how they justify inflicting violence upon others whether it's to exact revenge or or whether it's to you know prevent something from happening uh, they, they have their own justification behind it and i feel like he he did do that but then the way the story turns with with his life is is really sad because you know he spent years uh, as a fighter. He spent years in prison. He, he he was fighting some of the hardest men around in the UK, inside the ring and outside of the ring and within the prisons. And then towards the end of his life, when he becomes down and out, he becomes an alcoholic. He literally becomes a guy that you would essentially see in a city centre and you'd see him as a homeless person, you know, never never shaves, probably smells really bad. Uh, you can see that they, they, you know, they're quite drunk. They're quite easy to, to identify when you go, to, especially in the UK, when you go to a, a local town or a city, uh, the bus stations are usually the most prominent places where you find them, where there's some type of shelter. Paul Sykes turned into that at the end of his life and the abuse then he suffers is, is so shocking you know the fact that he gets he gets kids of anything from sort of thirteen to eighteen uh, bullying him, uh, weeing on him, you know urinating on him, uh, literally setting him on fire. He was set on fire twice because he was that drunk. You know he's sleeping on the floor. He's, he's essentially homeless, and these people are identifying him as an easy target. And for their own narcissism, they decide they want to do something bad to the guy. And it's it's hard because, like, for me personally, I felt quite sorry for him, you know, at that point of his life. I feel, I know he's long gone and he's not on this planet anymore, but it still makes me feel sad to know that these things happen to him. But then people have their own perspective of them. I've seen a few of the comments that have come up on social media uh, about, you know, he wasn't a very nice guy and he was a bit of a thug and he's, both of his sons are doing life sentences and then someone else is, uh, even today, whilst we're recording, has said, "Oh well, he used to get he used to get urinated on at Wakefield bus station." It's like he seems to be, he seems there seems to be quite a lot of mixed opinions on him, and, and I think that's kind of what's divided a lot of people over the years about him as an individual. People take what they want to take from his story, and they they use it to create their own narrative and, and interpretation on him. I think that. With these type of figures, things are very confusing. To go back to the point on that code, I feel like he had mastery in the prison system and he wanted some form of tradition to pass on, but he didn't really know what to pass on besides inflicting pain. It felt like he wanted to be a teacher. He wanted to pass down something, but it really, he didn't really have the mastery besides this fear. And when we look at the end of his life, I'm a spiritual person. I credit that largely to karma. You know, I really think that in life, if you do enough bad things, bad things do come back to you because you have a debt to pay in life. And I think that a lot of the pain he inflicted, it's not unlike The Godfather 3, which is a, a movie that a lot of people don't like. But I think the ending to Godfather 3 is very telling that you have this all-time great crime boss. And not to ruin it for people, but I will ruin it. 
he dies alone. You know, he dies alone on a park bench, lonely. And that's kind of how these kind of stories always often end. Yeah, they do. And this is this is another one of them. It is another one of these stories like that. But going back to parts of his life and elements of his life, like the boxing aspect of it, you know, he was a relatively short career, but there were reasons for that. He spent a lot of time in prison. But whilst he was in the ring, there were many people that felt like he would go on to, to do some pretty good things in the sport. I mean, we, we covered his career and, and the majority of his career on the episode because it was so short. So we decided to stick in as much as we could of his career and some of the more significant fights. You know, he got to the point in his boxing career where essentially he was one win away from being world rated and looking at the opportunity to fight Leon Spinks. I mean, that that's what a promoter said. A promoter said that he would have fought Leon Spinks should he have won the fight against John L. Gardner. But it was like when things got really tough in the ring for him and it didn't go the way he wanted it to go, whereas out on the street or out in, in prison, it was different. The way he fought was probably different because of the rules and regulations, of course. But when he got frustrated in the ring, you can see, you can see and you can tell from the story that he just... It was like... I'm trying to make, I really think of a good comparison for it, like... A frustrated, a frustrated child that hits out because they can't get what they want out of the person that they're asking it from. Like a, a child and a parent situation. You know, he wasn't getting what he wanted in the ring. He was getting frustrated that he wasn't achieving what he wanted to achieve in terms of beating the guy in front of him. So he'd then resort to maybe headbutting his opponent or against John L. Gardner. He essentially, he turned his back on his opponent, which he claimed was... He was shouting something at his corner. But the referee tells you to protect yourself at all times. So why would you turn your back to shout something at your corner midway through a fight? His opponent, John L. Gardner, goes into the dressing room afterwards and said, No, you you know, you didn't you didn't turn you turned away because you didn't want to fight me. You couldn't deal with the fight that was in front of you. So it was interesting, like the comparisons that were made about him in terms of his boxing career, and I didn't realise he was that highly thought of in terms of he was so close to actually going on to fight a world champion or an ex-world champion in Leon Spinks. That, that to me, was quite... Given what had happened outside of the ring and all the time he'd spent in prison, I thought that was quite a, quite a compelling fact. The thing that stood out to me about his fighting career, and I tried to look up fights and I was really unsuccessful, was he fought with a lot of emotion. And I think that any great fighter, if you're a coach... You try to teach fighters to take all emotion out of the sport. You try to because emotion is the most unreliable variable in fighting. You can control your conditioning. You can do repetition where you kind of can understand as an athlete where your technique is going to be. I was sitting in the shower this morning thinking about being on this podcast and going, what the heck is my boxing know-how going to be in this? And I was thinking about someone like Tim Bradley, right? If you have a young fighter, why not have them watch Tim Bradley? Because Tim Bradley is like the everyman. He never won fights on basically athleticism, the dynamic traits. He won them off ring IQ. He's the opposite of Sykes. Sykes went into these fights with too much emotion. And when things didn't go his way, he didn't have the capacity or the willingness emotionally to stay engaged in a fight. He what made him probably so dangerous in a street fight was he was volatile. 
angry, disturbed, and willing to do whatever because of a deep inner hatred of himself. But in a fair fight, he felt very vulnerable at times. And I think that that's why he was unsuccessful at the highest level of boxing. Yeah, I think that's a very good assessment. Again, as always, you provide us with these uh, these good interpretations and these good assessments of it. I think that's right. I think like you've hit the nail on the head because if he would have took that emotion away, that emotion that he's shown in different settings, again, who knows what what would have happened to him? Who knows whether he would have gone on and had a had a challenge for a title at least, or or gone further than than where his career actually took him, but. When you, when you look back on his life and his career and you look at all the emotion and anger that's within him, that is the reason why it prevented him from going any further than, than, than what he did in his career. So, in terms, of his, in terms of his career, you know, for me it was it was a case of, you know, what could have been, should have been, but it wasn't. And I, and I, feel, I feel quite like there was there was many more elements and things that could have happened to him but he just he just couldn't help himself it was like prison became a safe haven for him and it was like the outside world just wasn't what he wanted the structure that he got in prison the the identity the fact that he was feared in prison for me felt like this is what this is what he wanted it's like he wanted to be there but isn't this where like all these figures at a certain point that's their comfort because the world doesn't accept them for greatness for what they are. They, the world doesn't go, you know what? You're a big, tough guy. You're, you scare most people. But when he goes to prison, it's not unlike fighting. It's not unlike anything else in life. Once you're in an area for a month or two, people know who the real guys are. People know who the best people are at whatever they're doing. And when he went to prison, people knew he was one of the toughest guys and it just worked better than being out in society where he had to make a living and do all these other things. He could just be a big, tough badass and be in an area. And it felt like prison gave him a lot of structure that he couldn't find outside of prison. I think that's pretty much pretty much how things went, weren't it? I think I think that's the only way you can look at things for 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 Paul Sykes is that prison seemed to be the way that seemed to keep him in the right frame of mind. Strange, strangely to say that, isn't it? Like, it makes me feel strange to say things like that, but it, it was, it was literally how it was like 21 years spent in prison is, is a long, long time. Like, and it's like, sometimes he was getting himself put back in there for the fact that he wanted to be there. Not, not so much that, you know, he, he it was a case of, Oh, well, I, I don't care about the consequences of my actions. It was like he, he wanted to get himself put in there for me. I kind of visualized if we were writing a movie on this guy about him knocking a guy out, understanding he's going to prison and then the cops come and they know him. So they go, Oh, Paul, what did you do this time? And he, rather than being in fear of law enforcement, it's like, I feel like he had a relationship with every person within the system like he knew the routine. It was very comfortable. And I think that that was part of the issue too, was he understood being arrested more than he understood possibly like things like a job interview or going grocery shopping. That was probably more time consuming and stressful than it was to have to deal with being booked in a prison where he probably was like, Oh, that's so-and-so she's the nice person that books me. Oh, this is this. And that's, that's when you know you have a serious problem going on when that's kind of your view on things. 
But Paul is a weird figure because I think what sums it up is he had talent to be a really good boxer. He was extremely well-respected in the prisons. Basically, any prison he went to, he seemingly ran it or he was in an inner circle of the people that ran it. He was someone that I feel like everybody respected and that sort of defined his existence. But he could never find that place that worked for him outside of prisons. And I think that that's kind of like the sad part of this is that there was something about him that actually could have worked and he just never figured out how to make the most of that. I I find it quite quite a strange compelling story. You know, some people will not like the story. Some people will think, you know, this guy was just a brutal fuck and that's the end of that. And obviously there's there's a part of the story where, you know, he's a he talks about being a, a you know, a 30-year-old man but in his head he's a 17-year-old boy. And he gets into a relationship with two 15-year-old girls at the same time, which we mentioned, you know, today's paedophilia. That's what his class does, you know. People are going to look at that straight away and say, oh, hang on a minute, I'm not even interested in this story because this guy's a paedophile. Like, but we had to tell the story. At the end of the day, it's, it's no use leaving them sort of important details out about his about his life because it's not really portraying the whole story. It's, it's like me trying to talk about a story of an individual and missing, you know, the key details out and, and not relaying that to the people that are listening to it because it kind of becomes a very diluted story and, and not as, as factual as what it could be. And I think it was important that we put that in there along with a few other notable facts about his life because people that lived in the area or grew up around the area where Paul Sykes is from are very familiar with him. And there was a few comments on, on Twitter that were, you know, were, were quite sort of steering towards what their opinions were. And I won't go through them again. It's there on Twitter. You know, if people want to look at the sort of mixed emotions and mixed opinions on, on Sykes, it's all there. But we felt we needed to do a story on him that put every single version of him into it. You know, there's versions of of him where he's been abused as a boy and how that's then led into his led into his adulthood and how he's gone into prison and how, you know, he's gone from having uh, two sons to them two sons being locked up to then him, you know, basically be, becoming a homosexual in prison, having sex with men. And there's a story about him potentially raping the young offenders in the prison, the young guys that come into the prison. I mean, these are some really deep, disturbing stories uh, and, and they were quite deep and disturbing for us to go through. Like, when when we was putting the episode together, we were quite apprehensive about, you know, how are these types of stories going to be perceived? Because I know, depending on what the mindset of the person is that's listening to the story, will de- be dependent upon how they interpret that story to be. And for me, it was uh, it was quite it was quite a challenging one in in that regard because I felt like, you know, we're, we're portraying a guy here essentially who's from the outset, if you didn't really know much about him and you just was given a list of facts about him, you you would think, right, well, this guy's a paedophile, he's a thug, he beats people up, he he, he has he has sex with men in prison, he actually coerced men into having sex with him, there was rumours of him raping men in prison. I mean, when you put it like that, that doesn't pray, paint a pretty picture whatsoever. So it's quite it was quite a... A difficult one for us to do, but we felt like we had to put the true story in there, that the story from many people that were around, the story that had been previously put together uh, in, in, in many different 
bits of literature by by the author Jamie Boyle as well. He put uh, many bits of information in there from interviews he'd conducted with people around Paul. So I suppose coming back to you, coming back to your your sort of interpretation of this story, there's quite a few deep and disturbing moments throughout the course of that story. When you listened to them and you heard them back, I'm really interested to hear your take on on these incidents in particular. I mean, it's awful. Like that that's the summary is it's like this is a traumatic story of a person that you would not want your child to grow up to become. It's a very cautionary story. It's like they're making a movie out of this, you told me, and I feel like this movie is going to be like a very heavy like maybe ruin your day type movie because it's just like this is going to be like a lot of violence and sex and I mean this guy was literally an outlaw in the best sense of the words everything that was law he basically defied and for some people in the world that creates like an anti-hero aesthetic that maybe they're drawn to but I mean, this is a very this is a story where getting through the story for me was not very enjoyable. I love what you and Johnston do. I think you guys do a fantastic job. But really, like we're looking at this guy who's a folklore hero of the prisons, who, as I said, at the top of the show, he doesn't really have an accomplishment outside of that. He boxed a little bit. He never really accomplished it. And there's a part of me that sits here and goes, why are we? giving him time yeah. because there are people out there who are really doing all the right things and we're not giving them that spotlight. And a lot of the things he's doing, I don't want young people to think is right. And I don't want people to think by being better than this guy at what he did, that they should get a platform to be heard. So I'm very conflicted when doing this story. I think personally, if I was choosing the, selection of stories i wouldn't have chosen this story but because you guys have chosen it i'm voicing my opinions but really for me this was a very hard and conflicting episode to deal with it was for us don't get me wrong like i know there's moments in the episode that like i said earlier about the youtube comments about the giggling the sniggling all, all the sort of comments that were made on a different episode it is for me and Johnston, you know, when we have our own chemistry and our humour for, for our episodes, and when we come across a moment where we genuinely can't fathom that these events have occurred, it's like, like you said earlier, it's like a natural reaction. We kind of, we're either going to, you're either going to cry or you're going to laugh. And the only way to sort of deal with the nervousness of retelling such brutal moments, whether it be murder, whether it be rape, whether it be uh, abuse of a child, the only way to kind of fathom it or, or kind of, move forward from it it's like our natural reactions are to just sort of laugh in disbelief and i think that's kind of what we do and i mean there are some moments where you just kind of visualize them and you think you know that 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 sounds funny but and it, we know it's not funny but it kind of sounds funny and like the moment where he walks into that that lady's house that family's house and he literally goes down and just eats the tea on the table and it's like Okay, so he's not caused any sort of... He's not been violent to anybody. He's not hurt anybody. But he's obviously really intimidated that family for the fact that this guy's walked in as an intimidating figure, being known in the area for who he is, and the fact that he just walks into that house and eats that tea. 
the husband's tea and then, and then the family is just like you know what the hell do you do here when this guy comes in it's like it's like you get a gangster you know you know the local gangster comes to your house and says to you you know kind of kind of use your telephone to ring somebody and you know it's going to be somebody that's that's a very unfavorable character but you can't say no to them because you feel like you're in a position where if you refuse or you challenge you're putting yourself straight in the firing line for 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 something bad to happen and i think that's what happened there but for us it was like it was again we couldn't believe that it actually happened like it's a story that we'd put, put pulled up from a police officer that had attended a scene in which this incident had occurred and it's like really did this really happen it's that it's it's, it's sort of comical that it happened and you can visualize it as some sort of strange comedy sketch uh, and for us it was a comical moment because we couldn't we couldn't help laugh at like the fact that he, he had the audacity to do that like i just couldn't fathom the idea of this guy doing that but he did that's the thing he did do it uh, and and obviously as time goes on he starts to uh, get more deeper into the alcohol and, and and dabbles in the drugs and you know he starts to become like i said this stereotypical homeless guy who who you see who who just doesn't care about his own self-appearance and, and dignity that he would walk into shops and you know he would uh, urinate up like the loaves of bread in shops and it's like is this guy really doing these things it's like you have to you kind of have to laugh because it's for me it's just disbelief complete disbelief and that's my it is my natural reaction as a person, as a human, to, to, to stories of disbelief. I mean, the guy was literally a badass in that sense where, like, he defied social norms. He was fearless in all the right and wrong ways, right? I think the problem is, like, the story you share, that's kind of like the age old of, like, that's a badass gangster. When you start talking about 15-year-old girls he's dating... And what he's doing to men in prisons, that's when the joke kind of ends, because that's when it's like you're passing on this this that you have on to other people. So I think like with a lot of these figures, it's easy to romanticize the good and overlook the bad, or it's easy to look at all the bad and not understand why he became a cultural figure, because some of the things he did, I think that every man kind of wishes they could walk into someone's house, drink the husband's tea and be like, yep, I'm here. I'm the stoic because as you guys said, he, he kind of looked up to John Wayne and these cowboys and he kind of behaved like a cowboy in his own head. And I think yeah. there's a lot of men in the world that kind of wish they could be John Wayne, just show up in a town, kick someone's ass and leave. And that's what's complicated about that is this is there's an element of what we've romanticized in movies about this character and then there's some truly god-awful aspects to him yeah no i, I agree i i mean this is it i mean people might they might have listened to the episode now and they might be th- like thinking bloody hell you know there's some serious issues here right with what's gone on and you know we, we ain't doubting any of them issues are serious you know we're presenting a story we're presenting some some information that's come from interviews of people around this individual and we've presented some factual information that's that's out there in the public domain and it's down to you as an individual to really make your assessment of it which is what you've 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 done for, for this episode is you've made your assessment about what you think about this individual and i bet there's many other people that have walked away with different assessments of him and i can imagine that every single person that listens to this episode will have a 
completely different interpretation, whether it be romanticising about the the moments where, as a man, you could wish you could do something like that, or whether it be you've walked away thinking this guy's absolutely cruel and horrid and a horrible individual, and he got what he deserved. There's going to be people that have the, so many different opinions on it, which is, I think, for us, why predominantly, you know, a lot of these types of stories... In a way, they need to be retold as horrific as they can be at times. I feel like they do still need to be brought to the forefront because the epitome of what this show is all about is is bringing to light stories of, of individuals and incidents that have occurred that might not be as well-knowledgeable as, as what maybe people think they are. And I think this was one of them stories that, unless you lived in the Leeds and Wakefield area in the UK, outside of the UK... As I rightly did when I first seen the video of him talking about, you know, swimming across the Johor and punching sharks in the air hole, I just thought this was just some random guy that I'd been interviewed years ago, like just rambling on. And then when I heard the story, and I, I realised how how hard this guy had it and how hard he was on other people and how how abusive he was and how horrible he was at times, it made me realise that. You know, that kind of made sense. That interview kind of, in a weird, strange way, it made a lot of sense about the man himself because straight away on there, you can see that this is a man that's got this inflated ego, inflated opinion of himself about who he feels he is. Uh, and he set himself up in this John Wayne persona, as you, as you rightly pointed out. So for us to present a different story like this was the whole point of making sure that our series, what we're presenting to the the audience, whether it be the crime side or whether it be the boxing side, that what that listen to us, that they actually get a completely different depiction of a a story that's maybe not considered to be very well known across across the world. And I hope that we've kind of done as much justice as we feel we have done to this story as possible. And we still feel that there are stories out there that have not been brought to the forefront. So there could be stories from people that didn't want to participate in in the writing of the books about Paul Sykes. There was many people that knew him well that declined to comment because they felt like if they do comment, all they're going to be doing is is resurfacing stories about someone that's not here anymore uh, that are worse than what's already out there. And I think that's why these people that were around him who declined to, to be interviewed for the books that are out there didn't want to say nothing because I think by the sound of it, by the sound of what they say in their comments about declining wanting to be a part of these these books, it's because there are obviously a lot more stories out there that we've not been able to uncover that only people around him knew about that are probably even more horrific than what we already know. He was he was feared, and to just sum up this episode, a narcissist, rebellious, and a love of violence seems like the perfect recipe to create a predicate felon. Yeah. Uh, again, take what you will from it. <laughs> take what you will, because I know there's definitely going to be many people that will have their own different opinions on this individual. Uh, and, and it's hard because... There's definitely elements of each part of his story where you do feel... I mean, for me as a human, I feel a little bit of sadness for what some of the stuff he went through. But then uh, you also feel anger towards some of the incidents that he... And the and, and the beatings that he inflicted upon people and, and the intimidation and, and making people scared of him. You know, it's not very nice. I think ultimately he's just not... Wasn't a very nice individual overall, only to people that maybe 
he had respect for. For anybody else, it was like, well, I don't really care about you. I'll intimidate you how I want to intimidate you, and, and I am who I am, and you've got to deal with that. That's kind of a lot of the takeaways for me about it. It was a difficult story, uh, some horrific tales, but a story which I felt needed to be told. It needed to be put out there again. It needed to be put together because there are many different versions of, of stories out there. And we, what we try to do, as you as you know, is we try to put one complete story or as complete as possibly can be. We want to put it out there and, and let people listen, let people have their own views on it, interpretations on it, uh, and, and, and hope that you know, you're actually enjoying it. I mean, you've listened to it. Your, you've voiced your opinion on it and it was for you it was a difficult listen because of the incidents that had occurred and I can imagine there's probably other people out there that feel, feel the same in terms of the difficulty of some of the incidents that occurred but ultimately it's it's one of them episodes where I think if we didn't cover this episode I think we you know we um, we're not doing justice to what the show's all about there are a lot of famous boxers out there that have done many bad things, but then there's a lot of people that have been involved in the sport that I think need to be not put on a platform to become a hero, not put on a platform to be, uh, you know, to be championed as a hero, but to be put out there to make people realise that, you know, they might have their own interpretation of this guy, like I did at the very beginning of, oh, he's just some guy who's rambling on. Actually, now, these people might say, well, you know, he wasn't a very nice guy, and the way I look at that video now is actually completely different. Like I do, I look at that video now in a completely different way than I originally did when I first seen it. And meanwhile, I'm looking at video camera lights while you're doing this beautiful uh, closing segment. I mean, I think this is a, a case where he lived by two laws of power. Fear lasts longer than love, and your reputation should be guarded with your life. Sadly, the reputation he wanted to guard with his life was one of utter fear. Who are we covering next week and what can people expect? Uh, episode number nine, coming right towards the end of the, the series now. Episode number nine is going way, way back. We're talking into the early 1900s uh, about a middleweight fighter who once moved up to heavyweight to challenge Jack Johnson. And of course, we're talking about Stanley Ketchell. But Stanley Ketchell wasn't just a, a great fighter of his time. He was a man that ended up dying too young. Not just dying, but murdered. This was another gruesome tale where we felt like it needed to be resurfaced. Even though this tale is over 100 years old. Even though this story is over 100 years old. These things happened. And Stanley Ketchell, I see many people on social media talking about boxing and the history aspect of it and the way they champion a lot of things that go on and how people can go as far as trying to put these uh, guys from over 100 years ago and compare them to guys that are in this generation that we live in but we wanted to tell a different story we didn't just want to tell a story of a guy that was 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 liked by people around the time we want to tell a story of a guy that was you know, yeah, he was a great boxer yeah, he challenged Jack Johnson but this guy died too young why did he die too young? Well, this is what the story's all about. We're going to talk about this story on the next episode. And when we come back to the after show, you know, hopefully we'll have uh, given you another education on, on this individual. And you'll hopefully come back, which I'm sure you will, with some with some great interpretations, some great outtakes on, on, on what the life and times of Stanley Ketcher were like. 
in my work office right now, I'm literally feeling like a mortician right now. Like I'm feeling like I'm dealing with death and destruction all times. I don't know why it hit me so heavy right now, but I was just thinking I'm about to go maybe make a sandwich for my lunch over here. It's late over in the UK. And it's like, I think this whole season is starting to catch up with me because we haven't had one optimistic story. I mean, maybe <laughs> Tapia had a little positivity in there. But this one, I won't lie, this was the heaviest and hardest one so far for me. Yeah, I I, I understand why. Again, I understand why. There's there's a lot of incidents that uh, have occurred with Paul Sykes that can be quite close to the bone, I think. I think we kind of pushed pushed the envelope a little bit with this episode. And, you know, maybe there'll be a bit of backlash from it from people. I don't know. But I think people wanted to hear the story. I think people wanted to have their own take on this story and they want to have their own voice on this story. And I feel like we've given them an opportunity to do so. And again, I, I reiterate, it's not that we want to put someone like Paul Sykes on a pedestal and say he was, you know, this great guy who who was this anti-hero. That, no, you know, he committed some 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 terrible crimes. He committed some terrible incidents throughout his throughout his life. And and like you said, you know, you're a spiritual guy. You talk about karma. Well, Johnston, I think, said it quite rightly in the episode about karma being a, a big old bitch and coming along and, and slapping him hard when it came towards the end of his life. And whilst I know there was a lot of bad incidents that occurred in his life, I still felt sorry for him at the end because I still feel like no human being, no matter no matter what's happened in your life, deserves to to be put under that level of, of, of punishment and horrific abuse that he suffered. I mean, I don't, for the life of me, believe that he... He abused anybody or hurt anybody in the same way he was hurt at the end of his life. However, he said in his own words, you know, he accepted it. He accepted that it was like life coming full circle on him, which I felt was quite strange. Like, it was like he's saying, yeah, I understand, you know, I've given it out and now I've got to take it and that's it. It's, I agree with you. It's like life failed him. He got put in a circumstance where it's like he would have had to have been an extraordinary person to defeat the circumstances he was placed within. That being said, at a certain point, you have to look like I'll give you a great example. And this is a funny example. And it's nothing at all like this at all. And it's probably not even fair to equate it to trauma. But when I was like 18 or 19, I loved listening to obscure rap, right? And I'd always go, nobody listens to the rap I like. And then one day I was like, you know what? I'm going to listen to the stuff everybody listens to. You know why? Because I'm tired of no one not knowing the music I like. And I want what I like to be relevant. And all that did was give me a bigger vocabulary to have entry points and understand different perspectives. That happened to me at 19 years old. I'm not saying I'm expecting everyone to look for new horizons in their life, but at a certain point, no matter what you've been through, I would hope you might look and see someone that you go, that's a successful guy, John Wayne. That's my spiritual successor. What did John Wayne do? And then you have to try your best to move for that. And I think the hard part for me is he never really took the steps to change he just embraced who he was and that's the hard part yeah it was like he was put in this role of a pantomime villain and it's like he wanted to play the role and he played it so well and that for me was that was him 
that was just him. He he was he was like labelled the pantomime villain, so he became it and he embraced it and he he engrossed himself in it and he never really wanted to be anything else other than it because he relished with him playing that role. It's like an actor playing playing a certain part in a film. Like certain actors are meant for certain films. Heath Ledger's Joker. I mean, that will forever go down as that that was meant for him. That that role was for him. It was like when people believe in things, some things are meant to happen for reasons. Like Heath Ledger's Joker, I think that was meant to happen. It was meant to happen that way. Paul Sykes was 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 born into violence. He became violent. He inflicted violence, and really, it ended quite violent for him. And I think the the typecast is what they call actors, where they get they turn like I think Liam Neeson is a good example. Now he he had that great performance in Taken. And now it's like any movie we see him in, it's some type of revenge journey where someone did his family wrong. So now he's got to get the pistol. He's got to go on the road. And it's basically because the first Taken movie meant a lot to a lot of different people. It was an interesting concept. And I think the bigger underlying theme was how many of us wish either we were that type of father Liam Neeson played or how many young people wish that that was their father, that if something went wrong, he would go out and protect them. And I think Sykes at a certain point bought into just, I'm the bad guy and this is, I'm going to just play the hits of being that bad dude. Yeah. I think that's a good way to, uh, to, to end the episode and, and thank everybody for listening to the main episode and thank everybody for, for listening to the after show and, uh, Big thanks to you, Luca. Obviously, we're coming towards the end of this uh, this after show for the second season, and um, hopefully, the next time we do an after show after episodes nine and ten, we'll be doing it on something more positive. We'll, you know, maybe we'll look at what our legendary nights podcast will bring up because I think them stories actually are a lot more positive. Whilst they have their own elements of uh, issues within them, there's always a lot of positivity in them because at the end of it all, we are just talking about a hell of a fight and a hell of a story. I think it's kind of funny that like the program that I initially started on your great channel is like the most bleak and depressing of all the content. you. It's like, let's just do 10 weeks of talking about these things that are going to bum you out on a Monday, but it's awesome. I love talking with you. I consider you a good friend and I can't wait to talk next week. Yep. Thanks for listening, guys. Make sure you follow us both. ITR Boxing's channel, Darker Side of Boxing, on all social media platforms. We love yous, we appreciate yous, and we'll see yous next time. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.